Let's do this. What is virtualization? You're going to learn today. Innovate like a startup. Deliver like an enterprise. I hope you're coffeeed up and ready because it's going to be a great day. I know you're going to dig this. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the Virtually Speaking Podcast with Pedro Arrow and John Nicholson. Good afternoon and welcome to the Virtually Speaking Podcast, episode number 183. My name is Pete Fletcher, a.k.a. Pedro Arrow, and joining me once again is Mr. John Nicholson. John, man, how you doing? I'm, I'm working on my caffeine right now, so I... I had switched to too much soda, so I'm now trying to be a bit more calmer on my my things. I'm going with tea. Tea. I think it's going to give me the right the right speed and pace for the day. Nice. I've done the same actually. I'm drinking green tea. Look at us. We're, Look we're, at us. We're, 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 we're so 21st century hipsters. <laughs> Speaking of 21st century hipsters, <laughs> yeah. Perfect segue into our next guest on the podcast, which is no stranger to the podcast, Mr. Miles Gray. Miles, welcome back. Thank you, Pete. It's been a while, actually, since I've been on here. It feels like a long time. Yeah, yeah. You you dove into the world of Kubernetes, and we've we've been looking for you, and we're we're glad to pull you back in. And 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 honestly, I've been drowning, man. Here we are. We're back, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good because uh, I myself am dipping my toes in the worlds of Kubernetes, so I'm going to be a big pain in the butt to you, asking you lots of questions. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of questions to ask, as I've realized over the last while. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Miles, you've been writing a lot of great blogs lately. Uh, as a matter of fact, the last one that you wrote, I, I read it. I was like, this seems super interesting. But I had questions. Uh, it certainly seems like if you're a developer, this would make perfect sense. But as an administrator, I was like, hmm, there's definitely some uh, some information I need on this. So I figured, hey. We have a podcast. Let's bring them on. Let's get all the answers. Uh, the yeah. topic and the name of the blog is Introducing Virtual Machine Provisioning via Kubernetes with VM Service. Right. So VM Service is kind of a different tack on how we've done VM provisioning in the past or even the persona that did VM provisioning in the past. Right. Typically, it's always been the VI admin. They deploy OVAs. Yeah. They set up some little bits and pieces and they hand it over to whoever needs to do what they need to do. And, you know, the whole vSphere Tanzu thing has all been around enabling developers, enabling the DevOps users, uh, maintaining self-service, that kind of thing. And that's what we tried to deliver with uh, VM service. And I, I think we were successful as well. Yeah, I mean, I get the idea. The whole point is, you know, you know, I've heard the the high level pitch for a long time was, you know, Tanzu specifically, like you have developers that need self-service. You've got your administrators that still need to handle governance. But how do you empower these developers to do what they need without having to, you know, log tickets just to get things created? And and I know we've done that with file services. We've done that with other, even with uh, the data persistence platform. But as you as you mentioned, and or as you alluded to, there there is a requirement for VMs when when you're creating apps. And so, how does that work though? Like, so we just enable something in in vCenter, and then everything's fine. Kinda, yeah. I mean. It- it does sound too good to be true, but it really it, it really does be like that. Um, you know, so basically how it works is you upgrade your vCenter to uh, 7.0 U2A, which came out a week or two ago, maybe a couple of weeks now. And uh, once that's upgraded, then you upgrade your supervisor cluster, which is installed as part of vSphere with Tanzu. Once you've done that, the service is just there. It's enabled by default. Um, so all you need to do is feed it a content library with our pre-approved OVA that we have. So one thing I'd just like to mention is, you know, this is the first version 
of VM service. This is the first time we've tried to do anything like this. And as such, you know, we put a few guardrails and limitations around it to make sure that we get the feedback that we need before we iterate and expand things a little bit more, right? So we didn't want just people to go free for all and, and you know, overwhelm us with bugs and whatever, which, you know, inevitably with V0 of anything, there are hiccups and there are bugs and stuff like that. But we've we vetted the images that we're distributing. We're keeping them nice and tight. So we've got CentOS and Ubuntu available out of the box, which, you know, by far is the most common OVAs that people would deploy anyway. Um, so that's that's available out of the box. You add those to your content library, assign some VM classes to it. And we, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit. And then your developers are available, uh, have, have the ability to deploy VMs from those OVAs. Yeah. And so, yeah, I saw your blog and I was like, okay, this looks pretty straightforward from the from the vCenter side. I, I went into workload management. I saw the service there and I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty easy. But then I got it got a little more. There were a couple of questions for one, like uh, the VM classes. How do I know what kind of what, what the different classes are and, and how do I know which classes to assign? Right. Um, I mean, to me, a good default is just assign all of them. Um, so VM classes are just t-shirt sizes, as we always like to talk about stuff, you know, relating to t-shirt sizes, but you've got, you know, uh, CPU heavy, memory light, memory heavy, CPU light, 50-50 mixes, some that are guaranteed, some of the, that are best uh, effort, you know, like different uh, policies for QoS, which are all enforced through DRS and, you know, our, our underlying uh, vSphere primitives there. So they're basically just t-shirt sizes and there's no such thing as having too much selection, at least in my mind. So why not just apply all of them? And we have a whole bunch out of the box. I think there's maybe 20, maybe more in there out of the box. Just apply them, let the developers use whatever they want. If there are some that are too heavy for your tastes, just don't apply those ones. Simple uh, as that. So on the that's the compute side. For the storage side, this is going to use the the CSI or is this just going to be mapped to SPVM policies directly? Yeah, so uh, it is mapped to SPVM policies, but it's mapped to the SPVM policies in that namespace. So whenever you create a vSphere with Tanzu namespace, you assign storage to that as well as quotas and they get deployed against those storage policies. Got it. So from a from a resource management, we've talked, okay, so we've got the compute basis, those map the DRS policies, we're allowing, you know, self-service and automation. And you obviously can restrict, I'm guessing, to a namespace what you want like you can with storage. So this way you can kind of give self-service, but still be the grown-up who puts guardrails and says, okay, they can't, you know, set 100% reservations or whatever you right. want them to do. Right. I, I'm thinking, how do I keep my devs from being wasteful? So I would, this is where I would do it within the those policies. Right, absolutely. And you can create your own VM classes as well. So if you decide that you want different shares for CPU memory, again, it's you know just the shares that you have in DRS. So nice. you can set it up the same way you set up any DRS policy. So whatever you can do with that, you can do with this and assign to your devs. And, and like you said, John, it's about you know making sure the devs don't go wild, right? And you keep <laughs> keep tabs on them, keep yeah, them under the thumb a little bit. Right, exactly. It's a subreddit somewhere. <laughs> Um, no, it's it's definitely a, a concern. So the the other bits here, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm watch the demo and the interface and you know you create the namespaces and you do that. Um, would I historically when I would want to expose a vCenter to an external party to deploy and manage, I would use some type of what we call a cloud management platform in the industry, CMP. For those of you who don't fall for the jargon, that's that's products like vRealize Automation. That's products like uh, VCD. Um, if you've gotten in a time machine and you've gone back to 2005, that's OpenStack. Um, <laughs> you know, or Open Nebula, or yeah, those kinds. Yeah, of things. yeah, yeah, those things. <laughs> would I still? Would there still be usefulness in overlaying a CMP on top of this? 
of some type, or is this something that would give me some ba- some good enough self service to work with devs without needing to go out to that? I mean, you can, right? You can always layer on more CMP and more admission policies and more control and 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 all that. So if you want to layer vRealize on top of this, sure, you could. But I think you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head there is this is good enough for most people, right? It offers the functionality that they need that is just enough functionality and not too much else. It's not overly complex. Um, you know, it's easy to use. It's easy to set up. It's a little basic right now, but, you know, we have a pretty rich roadmap around, you know, integrating uh, external hardware accelerators and stuff into these VM classes. So you can imagine in the future, maybe uh, GPU VMs that are being provisioned, that kind of stuff. So there's a whole bunch of scope. But at the minute, like I said, you know, V1 Alpha 1, it's the very first version. Keep it simple, just enough functionality, get it out the door. And, you know, we love to hear feedback on this. So if there's images that you're missing that would be useful to you, or if there's functionality that's missing or things that could be improved, you know, send me or Nikita, the PM she's mentioned in the blog uh, notes on Twitter. We both add them to the backlog and, you know, we can take it from there and improve the product. So kind of mapping, I guess, my mapping everything to my my Kubernetes container mine, you know, you've storage, you've got CSI to SPBM for resources, we've got DRS. Um, what about networking? What does that look like? Mm. Yeah, so there's two different ways you can do networking vSphere with Tanzu. The first one is via VDS, and that would be fronted by HAProxy or Avi Load Balancer, or as we call it these days, the NSX Advanced Load Balancer Essentials, or there is NSXT, right? And you can use NSXT and it will automatically spin up segments for you. And, you know, there's all the, the policy and security and all that kind of stuff that goes with that, right? In my lab, I just use the plain Jane vanilla VDS thing, just out of habit. Basically, it's what I've been using because I destroy these things all the time. So it makes it easy for me to spin them up. Um, But yeah, with uh, VM service, you can use either of those, right? If you're using NSXT, there's a little benefit today, which is you don't specify a network name as a developer, because frankly, why would the developer know what the network name is, right? They don't. They're, They're completely abstracted from the infrastructure. So you just say, okay, network NSXT, it creates a network for you, adds the VM into it, adds it to the T0, T1 routers, all that good stuff. Um, the alternative is if you're using VDS, uh, then you just specify the network name and the network name can be pulled back from the Kubernetes API. Uh, actually, I do it in the blog. So as, as I go through and I build out what it is to be a virtual machine in the Kubernetes API, I show you how to query all of that information from the Kubernetes API as a developer in a self-service manner. So there should be no items that you should have to ask a VI admin for. That's the idea, right? It should be self-service. They should be able to do it themselves. Oh, nice. So I assume you're backing that with port groups is what that is. And you can just dump a list of port groups that are exposed to that namespace or... Kind of. So whenever you set up vSphere with Tanzu um, or workload management, as it's called in the UI, um, it asks you what workload networks you want to create, right? And and there is one required by default, and we call that the primary, and that's backed by a port group. You can create multiple backend work, uh, workload networks if you uh, want so to. There is an abstraction layer. There, there is. There is, right? So just because something's called, you know... <laughs> you know, DV1, PG, whatever, VLAN ID, whatever, doesn't mean it's going to be called that in Kubernetes because frankly, that means nothing to anybody, right? So it might just be called primary and that's the only one they have access to. So when they do kubectl get networks, guess what they see? 
one option. They're going to pick the option, right? Let's Whenever not it comes give the developers to... too many options, they might get easily confused or right. Exactly. Like it's, it's like, but it's it, bad enough having shiny things, you know, in the interface. Yeah, but it should be easy, right? It should be uh, which. It shouldn't be which one do I pick. It should be well, I've got one option, or it defaults to a same default, right? And it's the same with uh, the IP addressing in the VM. Sure, you can give them static IP addresses if you really want to. Is a developer going to know what static IP address to give it? No, probably not. No. So our recommendation is that you enable DHCP on the, the network that you're back in these things, pass that in as part of your cloud init templating for the VM, which is you know standard practice whenever you do these things. And it just gets a DHCP address because why overcomplicate it? You know, why have to have a dialogue with a network team or a sysadmin when you can just do it all in one go, oh, make yeah. it self to self-service auto discovery. Yeah, that so is the goal. It, so you if you've got an IPAM device or something, you would integrate that in from the DHCP helper uh, for that network. Which right. that's, I guess, can you set a DHCP helper on a VDS or is that something you'd have to do on the physical? No, you'd have to do that at the network router level, I believe, right? I think it's called DHCP relay, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gateway provides that. Right, right, right. So you go ahead and create your classes. Then you go ahead and create your content libraries inside of vCenter. Uh, and then, then developers can just go in and start provisioning VMs and choose from the content library that you've created. Is it that simple? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all there is to it. So if they want to discover what's available to them, again, you as the VI admin don't have to tell them what's there. They can just do kubectl, get virtual machine images. They'll get a list of the images that they have access to. Super, super simple, right? So that it's all self-driven, self-service. You know, they can discover all this information themselves. I'm now, I'm now wondering like how much tighter we can integrate this. I mean, there's some things that may make sense. There's some things that I'm like, okay, should we figure out how to stuff OVAs into Harbor? But, mm. you know... Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe not, but, or, you know, you could go the other direction, you know, maybe content library becomes more than what it is. Maybe it doesn't just host OVAs. Maybe it hosts container images, right? Mm-hmm. You think about it in the opposite direction too. So, you know, there's plenty of options there. Oh yeah. I know go you ahead. created a GitHub repo uh, with a bunch of examples there. I, I'm going to go ahead and try that as soon as we get off this call, actually. Right. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. So I've got the manifests that I use throughout the blog in there. You can just download that repo, throw them at your cluster. And honestly, they'll work. Uh, as long as you've got the content library assigned, you're gonna, you're good to go. Um, there's some interesting stuff in VM service called Cloud Init. And Cloud Init, if you're familiar with like how VMware has done guest OS customization, I think we literally just called it VMware guest OS customization. Um, it, it was kind of limited, but it it served a purpose. It's kind of, you can think of Cloud Init, like if any of you are familiar with Kickstart for like Pixie booting servers and stuff yep. like that to, to get them up and running. So Cloud Init is kind of like Kickstart, but at a higher level. So imagine that your OS is installed. The Cloud Init is what next, right? What packages do I install? What users do I add? What groups do I add? Um, what SSH keys do I add to it? Is there passwords? You know, this kind of stuff. And really Cloud Init enables you to, and I don't say this lightly because, you know, you always get bitten by stuff like this, but it enables you to do anything mm-hmm. with the guest OS, right? You can run arbitrary commands, so you can literally do anything in the guest OS. You're not limited by what we've decided the functionality is. If there's functionality that's not in Cloud Init, which by the way is an open source standard, go have a look at it. There's tons of options. You can write your own scripts and, and push them in via that as well. So if you have a, a different um, you know, estate management suite, for example, maybe you're not using Viralize, maybe you're using uh, Chef or Salt or Puppet or one of these things where you need to install an agent, you could do that through CloudNet, right? It acts as your bootstrap, installs the agent, it's in your management platform, you go from there. So really, it's up to you what way you slice and dice it. So, so CloudNet, if I'm reading this correctly, it actually hooks through VM tools, right? 
currently, yeah, it hooks through VM tools. So there is a cloud init daemon within, you know, basically every Linux uh, operating system today. And there's even a, a cloud init provider for Windows as well that's in development, which is kind of interesting. Um, obviously, we don't support that today. I would like to highlight that's still very much in beta. Um, but there, uh, uh, cloud init does have its own daemon and we require VM tools to be installed. And we sort of we intercept some of that, the networking stuff, and then we hand the rest off to CloudNet, right? And that's why we've pre-validated some of these images because we know they work well and we we want people to have a good experience and have, you know, good feedback. We know we need to add more images. That's, you know, we understand that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we wanted them to, to work at the gate, right? And not just be completely busted if people download random OVA Ubuntu, you know, 12.04 from eight years ago and why is this thing not working, right? <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be looking on WilliamLamb.com uh, to see how I'm gonna be uh, doing unsupported BSD OSs with this. Thing. Well, so it's funny you say that because William has already written an incredible article using VM Service to spin up a nested ESXi lab. He uses ESXi OVAs and deploys them through VM Service in classic unsupported William Lamb style, but it works, right? So that that shows you the scope that you yeah. can get to with this. I actually saw that post on virtuallyghetto.com. I didn't see that on William. What? I don't know what you're talking about. What is that website? Oh, I'll have to check William Lamb. I've only seen it on Virtually Ghetto. So, yeah. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. No, post. I'm pretty sure it's on WilliamLamb.com as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, looking at this, yeah, this is wild. So, one question I had on the provisioning here right now that's cloning, I guess it. Does it do a full clone always off the OVA or can you do link clone or instant clones off of this? Uh, right now. And again, I'm going to keep saying V1 Alpha 1, <laughs> full clone. <laughs> No link clones, no instant clones, no fancy functionality. It's full fat clones. You know, it's fine. They're good for performance or whatever, you know, after the fact. They're yeah. not quick to spin up, but, you know, they work. They're a known quantity. And uh, I know we have internal discussions on link clones, instant clones, that kind of stuff. But when you think about like the kind of estates that you deploy this stuff into, link clones across data stores or instant clones across data stores. What happens is a base disk goes away, right? These are the things that we have to think about and how oh, yeah. do we how do we deal with stuff like that, right? So there's a lot more engineering than just, can't you just yeah, I'm thinking, enable I'm link thinking clones? more the CICD right. side of the pipeline and or the CICT, not the, the actual deployment. Um, mm -hmm. So the stuff that's really ephemeral is more what I'm thinking of. But yeah, that's, we'll, I'll add that to my wish list, Miles. So, right. Um, and so, and I, point Jenkins at. It, it's on PM's wish list already. So, so don't worry about it. It is well covered. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you might want to use something like this. So, for example, in, uh, I've been talking to a lot of customers that do Kubernetes, but they're, you know, traditional vSphere houses as well. And maybe they're a couple of years down their, their Kubernetes journey. So they're kind of mature. But they have an existing state, uh, a state and an architecture that includes not just Kubernetes, because you know modern applications are not just you know monocultures of one thing, right? They they have some functions as a service in there. They have some SaaS that they use. They have some VMs that they access. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes up to making an application. And whenever you're starting to build applications on Kubernetes and it has outside dependencies, you would like to be able to test and roll out stuff in the same manner as your Kubernetes application, regardless of what the backend is. So if the backend for the database happens to be a VM, just why can't we enable them to roll out a yeah. VM, install a database, right? You know, so there's plenty of reasons why you would want to do this. And honestly, most administrators feel more comfortable running a database inside a VM than inside Kubernetes. And simply the reason is, and you know, it's kind of, it's kind of false reasoning, but also I can understand where they're coming from. 
it's really, really easy to blow stuff away in Kubernetes. Super, super easy to delete just absolutely everything. It's a lot harder when it's a VM, right? And you, there's a lot more thought that goes into it. You just don't wipe the thing out, right? So yeah, maybe it is a little bit of false reasoning, but you know there is a comfort level it's as well that's associated with it. <laughs> right, you get the warm fuzzy. Ah, it's a VM. I know I how to back up a VM. VM. I can use Veeam or whatever I've been using for years, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you've seen, you've done this. You you wrote a four part series on on just standing up, you know, and being able to use, uh, you know, VM service. So this is obviously a a, a much uh, easier way to do it. So I know you've been right. through the pain yourself. No, I think I wrote those blogs like 2019 or something like that. And I remember yeah. at the time, Nikita, the PM reached out to me and was like, you know, we saw these, you know, what is the functionality that you need in this product if, if we're going to build this thing? And, you know, that's really what we delivered. I was like, I would like to be able to do what I did in these blogs without having to do what I did in these blogs, because this <laughs> yeah. is not nice. Yeah, not, not very uh, user-friendly. Right, right, exactly. But I think we're really at the point now, you know, I keep saying this, it's just the start. But I think it's really solid for the first version. I know what's on the roadmap. I know there's a lot of cool stuff to come. But I think for now, look at what Williams built. You know, for example, like the 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 things that you can build with this are really limited by your creativity. So it's up to you. You can build really complex nested lab, you know, infrastructure if you want, or you can just deploy some databases inside VMs. Sweet. Well, yeah, the blog looks pretty straightforward, and uh, I love the references to all that you've got your. GitHub in there. You've got a lot. This is a really, really, really well done blog post. So I'm going to leave that on the show notes of the page. But before we go, tell me a little bit about like, I know we've dove into what it looks like to enable this and how devs can actually start to actually use it. But um, maybe you can help me understand why they would use it. Like, what are some of the use cases that make sense for a developer? Right. And this is this is the thing, right? And most people will say, why would I deploy this in a VM when I can deploy it in a container? And sure, that's a great point. You know, most things that run in VMs will run in containers as well. Um, and, you know, that's, that is the case for almost any application, you know, outside of some very, very specific use cases. But there, like, like I was saying earlier to John, you know, there are plenty of applications and architectures out there that do have VMs as a fundamental part of their architecture. And one example I'll give you is Wavefront. Our SaaS service is yeah. built on VMs. It existed before Kubernetes was around, you know, so there was no Kubernetes to orchestrate their stuff and they built everything in VMs and they, you know, ran it on whatever they were going to run it on and orchestrated it whatever way they decided to. This enables you to have, you know, applications like that, that you've built previously and bring them under that Kubernetes control plane. So you get some of the benefits of their life cycling of, you know, using CICD pipelines to deploy this stuff. So it's not that, you know, containers or VMs are better than one another for a particular use case. Sure, there are instances where containers win, there are instances where VMs win. That's just, there are always trade-offs. Yeah. But it's more, if, if VMs are a fundamental part of your architecture, and if you're listening to this podcast, I imagine they are, there is a you know massive amount of stuff that you can take into this kind of system and start deploying it in a new way instead of doing it manually right click in the ui deploy ovf template whatever or you know whatever method that you choose to do that you do it through the kubernetes api and and to me this is not just a developer tool but also an opportunity for like vi admins to to level up their skill set right sure. learn a new tool learn kubectl i mean i i know you've been learning it over the last while and at the start it's not easy but you can see the benefits and it, and it does grow on you pretty quickly. And I think this is one of those things that VMs are a comfort zone for VI admins. They know them. They're a known quantity. 
And basically, this is maybe your stepping stone to start looking at the Kubernetes UI or Kubernetes UI doesn't have a UI, the <laughs> Kubernetes CLI as a new way of managing things, you know, and step away from the UI and step out of your comfort zone and maybe look at what's next. Because everything that we're building around vSphere with Tanzu, everything around Tanzu yeah. is all enabled through that control plane, through that API. And, and clearly this is the next step. So you know, there are uses for deploying VMs through Kubernetes API, you know, your previous workloads that you have. And like I said, maybe you have some really big databases. You just don't want to run inside Kubernetes. You want to run them in VMs. And, you know, we have, I can't talk about a roadmap, but wouldn't it be nice if one day you could import existing VMs, right? Mm. Rather than having to deploy net new. So you can think about use cases, how you would manage these things. And to me, it's also, a, you know, you're comfortable with VMs maybe look at your career and this is a stepping stone to take you to the next level and enable you on a new tool set. Oh yeah. I remember a few years ago when this first came out and I was talking to you, it seemed like back then the conversation was there's, there's VMs and then there's over here, there's, there's containers, you know, they didn't really mix so much, but now that's not the case. I mean, pretty much, yeah, it's definitely becoming more fluid. It's there's, there are lots of applications that will use both. Right. And, and, you know, there are, Good reasons to use VMs. There are good reasons to use containers instead of VMs. You know, vice versa. There are trade-offs for for everything. You know, VMs align very well for very very heavy workloads that go across NUMA nodes or a massive amount of RAM or whatever. Oh, yeah. Right. So there are benefits to using it for things like that. There are benefits to using containers for stateless workloads. They're really quick to spin up, that kind of thing. So everything's got its advantages. And if you have a good architect in your enterprise and they're architecting a software solution, they're not going to be looking at it from a a monoculture point of view. They're going to say, what suits this workload the best, right? And and some of it might be SaaS, some of it might be functions, some of it might be VMs, and some might be containers. And you're going to end up with a mixture. And that's that's why we built vSphere with Tanzu the way we did. It lets you use all of those things in this namespace. We understand it's going to be a polyglot type infrastructure. Well, and I really like that that focus on the ability to even support the existing tooling because thinking about this, you know, refactoring an application for a container, you and I've talked about this many times. If I'm going to rebuild this application for a container, it may make sense because I'm rapidly developing it. There's benefits to it. It fits the architecture done. But if I've got an existing application that's in a virtual machine and I evolve it or I do basically nothing more than security updates and then outside of that, I I maybe push code once every two years, that might be something that I would be, okay, the, the level of effort to bring that into the VM service is not that bad. The right. level of effort to refactor that for container, no one's going to pay for that. No one's exactly. Gonna, yeah. No one's going to throw the devs at that problem. So this helps me keep you know active and and bring into modern management techniques those existing applications that are not under rapid development that I don't own the code that I don't need to do all these things with, but. I can kind of have my cake and eat it too. And I don't break all of my existing monitoring and backup and DR tooling that I'm already Mm -hmm. dependent on. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And there'll be more that we can talk about in the future, you know, whenever more features get released and and that for VM service right now, it's basic VM provisioning does guest OS customization. But like I said, you know, we have a roadmap. We're developing this in the open, by the way. So if you're interested in VM service, the VM operator is fully open source on GitHub. Go check it out. We're having public meetings about the roadmap, about everything that we're doing. So this is all going to be developed completely in the public. So if nice. you want to find out what's going on, you want to bring your thoughts, it's all out there. So just check it out. It's on the VMware Tanzu GitHub. VMware Tanzu GitHub. Okay. And uh, th- so that's how you would also get in, get involved with some of the meetings as well? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's nice. all public. I like that. I like that. This is pretty exciting. I will leave links to all of this on the show notes of the podcast page. Uh, Miles, thank you so much for coming back and joining us. Uh, there's so much more to talk about uh, with you. I think we're going to be, uh, we might have to get you as a recurring guest these days. Sure. That sounds good to me. Sweet. All right. Well, that music tells me it's time to go. And so if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at vmware.com. You can subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice by searching Virtually Speaking Podcast. You can catch this in all episodes at vspeakingpodcast.com. A big thanks to Miles Gray for joining us and geeking out on VM service. We're back next time, but until then, bye for now. Enough of this jibber-jabber. <laughs>